So I'd wake up some mornings just deep in the darkness and not knowing why and how and and that was a real problem for my charismatic experience. I mean, I just, my friends had no category for it. Uh, my theology had no category for it. And I found myself slowly edged to the sides of uh, those circles in ministry because nobody knows what to do with a, a person who believes in the imminence and infilling and, and wonder of God in your life, but also wrestles with depression and anxiety and can't make sense of, of, of that experience either. So. Um, that it, it sounds like a weird tension but my 20s were just full of that stuff it was full of oh. like yeah i'm gonna fast and pray and stay up all night and listen to jason upton records until my ears yeah. bleed and then simultaneously um where are you god like what how what do you love me and if you do why can i have these miraculous experiences or be part of these vibrant communities and yet wake up in the morning feeling so alone and feeling yeah. so broken and lost um and how do I reconcile these two parts of who I am? Welcome back to another episode of Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making. I'm your host, Paul Ann Leitner. Today I'm joined by Strawn Coleman. Strawn is a writer, award-winning folk musician, and spiritual director from New Zealand. He's got a brand new book out called Beholding, Deepening Our Experience in God. Meeting Strawn felt a little bit like meeting some sort of old, long-lost friend. Uh, this is just a fantastic conversation. This is going to be split up into two parts with part one coming out, obviously, right now. You're listening to it. And part two of this conversation will be out next week. This podcast and all my podcasts are made possible because of the generous support of listeners just like you. I don't want to have ads. I'm not going to have ads in my podcast. I don't want to colonize your attention with things you don't need. So in order to keep my work going, I depend on the support of listeners just like you. So please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon today. You'll find a link in the description right beneath where you see a link to Strawn's new book, Beholding. So I hope you'll check that out. I hope you'll consider supporting. And for supporters on Patreon, there is a full unedited video of this conversation. So if you don't want to wait to listen to part two, you can just like jump right into watching a full unedited video of our conversation on my Patreon page for, um, for supporters at the seven buck a month level or higher. There's also a discussion forum. There's also, you know, a monthly live Q and a opportunity that we do on zoom with me and a whole bunch of other listeners from around the U S so I'd say even around North America. But at any rate, uh, I hope you enjoy today's conversation and stay tuned to the end so you can find out a little bit more about the Deep Talks Patreon community. Well, friends, I'm excited. We've been doing this series uh, at the start of the new year, a quest for meaning as a spiritual species. And thus far, uh, the guests that I've been talking to um, are, I would say, have a stronger degree of separation from from me and my current theological convictions, my Christian convictions. And that's been really fun. It's been fun to talk with people from diverse backgrounds and, and experts in various fields who are also trying to figure out how do we find meaning as a spiritual species. And But today, I, I feel like I'm, I'm coming home a little bit in talking to my guest, Strawn Coleman. Strawn is an artist he is a uh, songwriter. He's a spiritual director. He's an author. He's got a great new book coming out. I've been working my way through 
over the last couple of weeks is beautiful. I can't wait to talk about that with him as well. But Strawn, thanks for joining me. Yeah, a pleasure, man. It's so great to be with you and to get some time having a chat. I was just reading your article recently um, with Ecstasis. Was it, the, is it called The God I Thought Was Dead? The God, the God that- We Thought Was Dead, yeah. The God we thought was dead, man. I just loved it. So I've been really excited about spending some time with you, man, and just talking. I appreciate that. So I have followed you from afar through, you know, Instagram, Commander Communion, Commander's Communion account. But then as I like it suddenly hit me, I was like, oh, Strong Coleman is the artist I've been calling in my Yankee accent, Strahan all yeah. of these years <laughs> yeah. and then i put it together i was like oh i always loved this guy's music what a blast oh, and now as i'm starting to get into your book i'm realizing there are these these points of overlap that i i i feel in my own journey strong that i i see in yours and so maybe i'd like to start a conversation by maybe having you unpack a little bit of that journey. You talk about it in your new book, Beholding. And there were a few quotes. I can't remember if this was in the introduction of the first chapter, but um, in your gift of communicating with words and poetry, there were a few things that stood out to me. You you talked about how at a very early age, you felt this this sense of communion, this ease of awareness of God through nature, Mm. through awe in nature. And then as you aged, though, uh, this is one of the things you said, quote, you began to see the world in varying shades and you found yourself, quote, asking more questions of God than you were getting answers to. And I think probably most people that have grown up in the Christian tradition, especially if they grew up in any sort of stripe of the evangelical tradition, can resonate with that journey. And it's probably just a part normal part of development too you know just part mm-hmm. of our journey but here's the part that i that really leaped out to me and i think um there's a this pretty decent pocket of my listeners that are going to resonate with this too as well by your 20s you had moved into and i want you to kind of share if you can share a little bit more detail you mentioned that you you moved into the pentecostal and charismatic tradition and and you said mm-hmm. reaching upward with everything you had and i thought I, I can't think of a phrase that better describes that time period of my life too. Mm. marked by earnestness, passion, zeal. And yet at the same time, you were experiencing a deep heaviness. So mm. can you flesh out more of your story for me and for the listeners? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my story is, I don't know what it's like in the States, but in New Zealand, we have, we're a very small country. And so we, it's very hard to silo here. And so my in my background, I have all of these different traditions. I grew up, kind of came in my family. My dad was Presbyterian. So I kind of grew up in quite, in my younger years, a formal sort of rigid Presbyterianism would, would be fair of the church that I belonged to. But my mother, she was, she leaned far more to Eastern spirituality. So I had this weird combo where my dad had this very strong Presbyterian background, was going to be ordained uh, when he was sort of in his early 20s and then went off partying instead, as, as you do one or the other, right? And then my mother had this very prophetic intercessory temperament, which initially in the early years before she followed Christ was sort of found in Eastern meditation and New Age sensibilities. So I think when I 
look back, I had this both the sense, my dad's strong morality and sense of rightness and wrongness. It's very much my dad. He's a wisdom guy. And yet my mother's high sensitivity to empathy and kindness and the arts and to this, to this kind of the sort of spiritual realm of existence. And so uh, that's probably the best way to describe myself because from there we moved to a Baptist church, which was which was really cool. You know, the preacher wore a leather jacket, but um, <laughs> it, it was really like, I think as a kid, I think I had my mother's sensitivity. As I grew older, I started to get my dad's sensitivity, that sort of rationalization and trying to make sense of things. Um, and in the Baptist church, I really learned a, a real passion for truth and, and understanding, but I, I constantly started, the, the more you go down that track, the harder it is to find God with your brain. It's, you know, God is is ultimately just profound mystery. I mean, the very belief in a God, if you have that, um, presupposes unthinkableness. I don't even know what, what I lose the language to describe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think what the natural, my natural journey from there in my late teens was actually to completely leave the God project altogether and to to sort of my rationalization of God led me more into parties and, and the world. So it was in that pro in that part of my life when experience came into picture in my early 20s, I had an experience of God that surprised me and shocked me. And that experience was largely um shared in Pentecostal churches. So at the time, I, I kind of was in a bit, you know, still went back to the Baptist church I belonged in, but I, I flattered with and spent a lot of time with Pentecostal communities who, and this is going to show my age, this was back before, you know, really Bill Johnson had become a big deal. So I don't know if, if you ever saw those like from heaven to earth sermon uh, CDs, because we had sermons on CDs oh, yeah. back then. And it would be like, you'd go to a party and all your mates would be like, bro, bro look, and he'd open his jacket and he'd have like a whole line <laughs> of burnt Bill Johnson oh, CDs. Like, you got to get this, man. You got, and we're like, oh, man, it was mind blowing. And so, um, Brian what, and what Jen's, was, uh, Brian and Jen's, where you go, I'll go. Yeah, all yeah. the things, eh? All that yeah. when that sort of charismatic environment was obscure to most of us in the mainstream church. And and I just fell in love with it. I, you know, I mean, my friends back then were like, they were the kinds of guys that would just go into the bush with like a bottle of water for 10 days, you know, and they would fast and pray. And we would stay out at night and we'd pray and we'd fast together and we'd dream. Um, and I, I think what happened for me there was somewhere in there, this my my inheritance from my mum and dad was sort of meeting this kind of like I don't necessarily understand everything, but this experience lands me um in my belief. So my belief is kind of expressing itself and I can find I can find God. I can know him. Mm-hmm. Uh but yeah, the problem was for me is that in my 20s, my wrestle really came to be with uh sorrow and heaviness and anxiety, you know, mental health was a wrestle for me. I didn't know back then, but I was really starting a long journey of chronic sickness. So I didn't know that my body was just under constant attack. And so I'd wake up some mornings just deep in the darkness and not knowing why and how. And and that was a real problem for my charismatic experience. I mean, I just, my friends had no category for it. Uh, my theology had no category for it. And I found myself slowly edged to the sides of uh, those circles in ministry because nobody knows what to do with a a person who believes in the imminence and infilling and, and wonder of God in your life, but also wrestles with depression and anxiety and can't make sense of of the, of that experience either. So um, 
that it, it sounds like a weird tension, but my twenties were just full of that stuff. It was full of oh. like, yeah, I'm going to fast and pray and stay up all night and listen to Jason Upton records until my ears yeah. bleed. <laughs> and then yeah. simultaneously, um, where are you God? Like what, how, what do you love me? And if you do, why can I have these miraculous experiences or be part of these vibrant communities and yet wake up in the morning feeling so alone and feeling yeah. so broken and lost um and how do i reconcile these two parts of who i am because it's not like i wanted to be full no. of sorrow or grief or it's difficult uh, already in those contexts like you already mentioned there's a you know i grew up in a word of faith like explicit like kenneth right. Kenneth Copeland. i went to benny hinn crusades as a kid yeah. so you know you had oh. your presbyterian and the baptist experience the presbyterians and baptists were not full gospel to us i don't know maybe 30 wow. percent you know, wow. we look okay. down upon them. And then I moved into my, I didn't necessarily have, I mean, I flirted with it, but I wouldn't say I had that, that, that prodigal moment in my late teens, mm-hmm. early twenties. I like definitely flirted with it, but never had that full on. I'm, I'm leaving like the Amish community sort of deal yeah. and moved straight into out of the word of faith movement into the sort of like third wave charismatic culture. And so you mentioned some names that already like, I mean, I remember, I remember before, I I mean, there were still like, you're saying like bootleg CDs and stuff, but I remember sitting in Mm. Brian and Jen Johnson's living room when I was like touring the country with Sean Foyt. And I mean, my gateway drug into it all was Jason Upton too. You know, Jason's a a dear friend. I mean, those are, those are names that uh, were really important, really formative to me, but I, so I know that culture that you're talking about Strawn, mm. and there's a lot of beauty in it. There's a mm. lot of good in it. And yet there's also these, these challenges when you are leading healing meetings, probably more than likely, mm. I imagine that mm. that seems to be part and parcel for being a prophetic worship leader yeah. and dealing with the, the kingdom, not making itself fully realized in your own midst there's mm. a lot of shame and a lot of it's diff, it's mm. difficult to talk about and difficult i imagine did you feel at times that perhaps it was difficult to talk about maybe in in some sense you felt like in talking about it you would become someone else's project you know yeah oh yeah i mean it it, it seems crazy to to talk about it now because Culture's changed a lot since then. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think back to when that was. It must have been um, early 2000s around, around that space um, when, you know, you could never use the word depression then in a no. church, well, at no. least in, in not in any church culture that I was a part of. And I don't even think I would have known to even use that word at that time either. And so, yeah, if you shared, if, you know, if you were getting together and people are sharing miracle stories and you're just like, I had a bad week. That was very much like, man, don't speak that over your life. Don't like sow right, that curse right. into, you know. And so, and, and if you continue that way, it is, it's something of there's a brokenness in you um, that those feelings are, are feelings that you are not allowed to experience. There was no cohesion there. There were two sets of emotional experiences for humans. There was Christians who had life, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and abundance and the miracle power and all that stuff. And then there was non-Christians that, that the sorrow is for them. And um, as I look back, I think I've always been something of a man of sorrows. And I mean that in a sense mm-hmm. of like, 
I think for me, that is a way that this, that God has communicated to me. And actually, yes. I've, I've experienced solidarity with the world. And yes. I now see that not as, um, it's why I tend now to use less the word depression, actually. I'll find other words for it, sorrow or grief or heaviness, because I see all of these emotion, this emotional set experienced primarily in Jesus, actually, but then also through the whole of the scriptural story. Mm. And I see them as access ways now into um into a experience of the divine that other emotional sets just won't allow me to to touch. And so back then, though, it was very much of there's something wrong with you. And, and I think that's why I, I said earlier, I, I slowly edged to the sides of those communities because, um, A, there wasn't an acceptance, well, maybe you shouldn't minister because, or you shouldn't do this or shouldn't lead this meeting or sing because clearly there's something not right. Mm-hmm. Um, but B, I guess people got a bit tired because they just want to run hard, man. They just want to bro- blow through that roof. And you're kind of asking questions like, well, what do I do about this grief? Or like, how do I deal with this insecurity or the sense of like, I don't know where God is. And that can that can feel like a weight, like almost like an oh, anchor yeah. to people totally. in that community that they, they're like, we don't want to run with that stuff. We want to talk about miracles. We want to talk about um, ecstatic experiences and theology. We don't want to get stuck in the thickets of um, your questions or your um, your desires, which was always strange for me because uh, my heart was deeply in all of that stuff that they longed for. Uh, but I refused to sacrifice, I guess, what was real in my life and sacrifice how I felt to achieve it. For me, it was always like, man, God is either Mm. able to integrate or is not. (laughs) But to me, he has to be big enough to integrate those things. And probably that's largely been my story um, since then and why relearning prayer and relearning language of all of this stuff has been so crucial for me to, to understand. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the light bulbs for me, Strawn, was at some point realizing, and I remember going through, I used to lead these healing meetings um, as a prophetic worship leader. And, yeah. you know, somewhere out there, there's albums floating around from 10, 12 years ago that, <laughs> that I would are, love to hear those. Yeah, yeah. If I if I have some files, I'll share them with you. But, um, and those were really, really special moments. And I, I remember seeing like deaf ears opened and and like mm. miraculous things, you know, book of acts mm. sort of stuff that we would, we would focus on. And yet also struggle with the sense that I would be at these meetings and, and our, our oldest son had a, had, um, you know, a pretty long list of, um, illnesses and, and things that he was wrestling with. And I'd be going through and these incredible things would be happening, but I'd come home and find that my wife had spent the entire night with my son who had really, really bad asthma, like sitting with him with steam in the Mm. shower, just trying to get him to breathe, you know? And so there's a degree of Mm. dissonance there. And in the narrative structure of the culture, as it existed at that time for, for both of us, there was this sense that um, yes, God is good. God is good. God is good. But I think one of the light bulbs for me was the realization that there was an implicit message about God's goodness seemed to be only accessible if we hit some unspoken minimum faith threshold. Mm-hmm. And you never knew what that threshold was, but it was like, God is good. God is good. God is good. But you can only access that goodness if you've hit Whatever this unspoken threshold is that gives you access, maybe you need to decree things a little harder, you know, maybe you need to, maybe you need to change the atmosphere with a little bit more intensity. And, um, 
you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, I'm not, and I don't see in your work either um, advocating for apathy or that we are powerless to um, participate in God's renewing work, but there is, you use the word anxiety, Mm -hmm. anxiety. And I'm, I'm curious to look back um, and I don't want to spend all this time on the negative, but I do think it's important part of your journey, Strawn, because I do know that so many people, they brush up against that cognitive dissonance or they feel the weight of shame because they have similar experiences to what you've experienced. And they come out thinking that that might be all of the Christian story in its totality. And then they feel like they have to leave the Christian story for some other story. Mm. So to properly address that, I do think it it it's incumbent on us to be honest about those experiences Mm. And to share from those to help people go through a process of healing that I have I've actually seen in your work. Mm. So when we talk, you mentioned a word about anxiety. Mm. As you look back on the formative practices of your church culture during that time, and maybe the broader charismatic culture that you were networked in, mm. would you say that you can see now? liturgies of anxiety you know could you see ways that you look at this practice and this practice and go all right compared now to this newfound communion that you've have you have with god and maybe new mm. rhythms and new practices that are actually much more ancient that you look mm. back and you can go man i i can actually see in this and this ways in which maybe we might have inadvertently been incentivizing anxiety or self-righteousness yeah yeah that's a great question, man. I I appreciate the the thinking behind that because th- there's so much unwinding to do. Eh? I mean, it feels like, you know, you have some kind of experience and you come to God and you have this, some revelation that at that first moment feels so pure and simple. It's just God exists. He loves me. And, you know, it's like, how could I never have to worry again. And then it feels from that moment on, we're spending the rest of our lives pulling weeds from you know, from the wheat, you know, trying to figure out what, all the stuff gets all jumbled up. The simplicity gets jumbled up. And I think I've spent a lot of my later years in my adult life, because I still have a very charismatic heart and um, that has never changed. And I, I've heard it said by a few people that the greatest way into um, sort of the contemplative realm is through the charismatic. And I just totally agree. Yeah. And yet it has taken me, I feel like some something of 15 years to unwind some of the damage done by those unspoken assumptions, I think, that have come through charismatic culture. And I wonder if part of that is because we have said we have categorized the charismatic almost denominationally, where it's actually just a dimension of the promises that right. Jesus brings. And so we find it difficult to separate those two things. Um, but when I look back, you know, I think of liturgy's anxiety. I mean, I think, you know, me and my mates staying up all night praying and fasting. I, I think that just the fundamental assumption that is both good and not good is that we need more. We have to have more. And so mm. it is quite um it is quite an industrial spirituality, really. It is quite a, a globalized, it's quite a capitalist spirituality. It, there is simply never enough. And so all your songs and all your prayers become about, we need more. We need you to come. We need you to arrive. We need you to fill. We need, you know, um, you know, Holy spirit, you're welcome here. Can fill this place, flood the atmosphere, you know, all very, very wonderful and profound invitations. But 
if you keep doing that, you scoop out from the heart um, the security of the withness of God that Pentecost was meant to itself finish. Um, the promise that you and I are no longer inanimate, you know, whatever we may think we are, just another Joe Bloggs. We, we are living in the Trinity. We are caught up into the community of God in this very ordinary and strange looking state that we're in. This is the fundamental truth. And so, but if all I do is ask God to arrive, mm. I never thank him and I never sit in the arrival of God. It becomes a liturgy of emptiness and it be a liturgy of lack. Mm -hmm. And that generates anxiety because you keep thinking to yourself, when will this end? I'm getting exhausted. I have been praying now six or seven years, you know, and I, yeah. I you you haven't arrived. And I think um I think when when Pentecostalism was born and the charismatic, you know, Pentecostalism was born sort of 60, 70 years before that third wave charismatic movement in the church. Um, I think when it was born, it it kind of if you read its early theology, it was somewhat divorced from Orthodox Christianity. I mean, there's some pretty amazing stuff in there that I think most Pentecostals would be like, well, I'm really surprised that early Pentecostalism had that theology. But I think what the implication of that was is it kind of unanchored itself from a lot of the great, hardy, contemplative theology that has been present in the church for thousands of years. And so you have this single, this lopsided spirituality that, wants to see the gifts of the spirit that wants to experience the imminence of God, but lacks the infrastructure of gratitude and thankfulness and the sacramentality of the church, which existed for thousands of years, which is the art of seeing God already present in our life. And so this anxiety comes from this disconnect. I want God, but I'm not being taught how to see him when he arrives. And so you're just banging your head against a wall saying, arrive, arrive, arrive. And yet your child's up with asthma and you wake up in the morning with a heaviness in your soul and you've got to go to work and do a job that doesn't feel spiritual at all to your Pentecostal friends. And you're wondering, when is God going to arrive? Because this stuff is mundane. Mm -hmm. And I think what the mystics of the church, who I would just say are Catholic Pentecostals or whatever, if you want to throw some weird language at it, they would say that this arrival of God enters into the mundane and the ordinary and, and just enchants it, illuminates it in such a way that the presence of God is experienced in a in a really, really wide way. And I think when you do that and you say, man, the presence of God is found in staying up late with your children and um, experiencing the mundaneness of sorrow in your work life or the death and grief of someone and that God's presence is in those emotions, suddenly anxiety dissipates, God is with you and yeah. you're soaked up, you're you're lost in him mm -hmm. and everything becomes Pentecostal and you're no longer farming that out into particular experiences. Um, and for me, the language I want to give to that is the language of beholding. I want to say we are now learning, yes, to continue to invite the spirit to act in imminent ways that fly in the face of what the everyday mechanics of the world might tell us. But also I'm wanting to see the world entirely different and I want to see it as God soaked and as a place of divine communion. Um, and that art form of seeing, I think, is probably what was missing in the liturgies of my charismatic experience, that, that yes, seek to attain these things, but also turn and face the world of God as it is mm. and plunge it, you know, treasure hunt the wonders of God in the most small and minute and strange places 
because the kingdom of God has come, you know? And I think, I think that's where the, when the contemplative and the charismatic marry, we just have this beautiful non-anxious presence that seeks so much more than we have, not because we need to be validated by others or by God, um, but because we long to love others in supernatural ways or in, or in spiritual ways that are beyond just me doing maths in my cabin. Yeah. Yes. I don't know if if that makes sense. What I'm saying. Totally. No, it's beautiful, beautifully stated. So I think thus far, you know, the focus in this series, I've been talking with people who have realized, you know, grabbing on some of the language of Charles Taylor, that there's an overarching story that even those of us that have lived in charismatic contexts are still subordinate to because there's a, a larger macro culture in the West that has mm. lived under the secular story, the story of the secular age, which says all the only place we can find meaning is in imminence because imminence is all that we have. There is no transcendence. And I see a lot of what the Pentecostal movement in Azusa Street was trying to, to actually re-enchant that frame. You know, the, mm. the framework of, of, uh, of a world in which transcendence and imminence dance together, they're married together. Mm. There's a God that is both transcendent, fully holy, and yet a God who is with us, who's poured out his spirit on us and his mm. present even living in us. And so mm. we see that in, 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 in the Pentecostal movement. And I think what we have here is like varying degrees of tension between lo- look searching for God, right? Searching for God in imminence, searching for God in transcendence. And sometimes like the pendulum might have to swing really, really hard in one direction Mm -hmm. to get us out of another ditch. And I think Mm -hmm. at its best, like the charismatic and the Pentecostal, which are distinct, but what they were trying to do was like re-enchant the frame. When I really Mm -hmm. look at it in, in with the most charitable lens, it's 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 affirming something about there is more than the mundane. And so people mm-hmm. that have lived lives, I remember seeing advertisements for charismatic conferences that were almost like playing off of the sort of like fight club and the matrix sort of vibe of it was literally an advertisement. It was someone kind of like sitting in their work cubicle. And you could see like them in their countenance, a sense of like nihilism and apathy. And what they needed to do was they needed to essentially come to this conference to get lit up, right? Yeah. <laughs> <was> like, yeah. <laughs> like come here, experience transcendence. Yeah. And I think there was something really valuable about that. And, and that phase of my own journey, and I hear in yours, Strawn, is like, mm-hmm those were important moments to know that there there was more there's a story beyond our secular story yeah but i think maybe what i hear one of the first things i think of strawn and in, in trying to figure out well okay but i live most of my life in the mundane like in the mm. material in changing poopy diapers and working a job, you know, as I read in your book as well, I spent, spent plenty of my life not making any money traveling around the country, <laughs> living off of honorariums that I wasn't sure I was even getting. So I know that road. <laughs> yeah. I know that road, but you know, most of your life though, you're, you know, you, most people are working a job that might not have been their dream. And it's like, if God isn't to be found in those spaces, 
that's like the vast majority of our lives. And you know, what hit me, it hit me in a really weird way. I was watching, this was circa maybe 2010 for me. This is where it was like, oh, I got a problem here. I knew there was dissonance already going on. There was spiritual dissonance I was experiencing, but I started putting it together when I watched a, a film came out from Terrence Mallett called Tree of Life. I don't know if you've seen this film or not. I know of it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah. And somehow Malik captured in this film, like the glory of God in the mundane. And I bawled my eyes out through the movie because I realized I didn't have a grid for this. And so much of where I was locating meaning and locating connection and communion with God was in like the extravagant, the conference, the you know, the, the, you know, you talk about four hour long prayer meetings. I was leading 24 hour long <laughs> prayer meetings, taking shifts, Amazing. you know, and it's like, we have to, it was like this, this tabernacle or temple paradigm, which was the presence of God is located here. And our job is mm-hmm. to get people to come to the temple and the tabernacle instead of the veil being torn and mm-hmm. it being poured out everywhere on all flesh. And so I saw that in the movie and I went, I've got a problem. Because most of my life, like my marriage isn't really good at this point. I don't know how good of a father I am. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know how good I am doing right now. I guess I'll find out in a couple <laughs> decades. But I really didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't fit all of that transcendence into those moments. And for me, just like you're describing, it took a journey outside of the charismatic stream into exploring other streams. And I think it's really by the grace of God, because Strawn, I, I, you know this too, there's plenty of people that bump up against that and they go, the totality of the Christian story and the way of Jesus has nothing to offer me. And so they move into maybe other religions or DIY spiritualities to sort of mm. figure mm. out how can I endow this moment in the mundane with transcendence and yet how can mm. I find transcendence beyond the mundane too? Mm. And so they don't know that there might be a broader, deeper, more ancient expression of the mm. way of Jesus. And um, so tell me a little bit about how you encountered that broader river and, and maybe mm. moved beyond just like the charismatic instead of leaving the Christian story altogether, you were like, hang on, I think I found something here. You've already talked about like the desert fathers and mm. mystics from the past. How does somebody who's in charismatic culture, which is doesn't have much of a view of history beyond, you know, the mm. revival that yeah. happened in yeah. Toronto. You know? There is no history. Yeah, there <laughs> is no history. So how did you start it? Like- how did you uncover it? And and tell tell me a little bit about that that side of the journey. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's much like what you were saying, you know, it sort of wasn't, you know, for you talk about watching that movie and almost just kind of being like, hang on a second here. This is something that I've, this is confronting for me. Um, it wasn't something I ever was interested in or, or knew about. Like you say, I mean, I just had no mental map for church history, but apart from the Reformation, you know, which was basically the excuse I had to, to buck uh, any authority that I, I wanted to when I wanted it. I'm just following my ancestor. Um, 
I, for me, it was chronic sickness. I mean, I, I went from traveling the world as a musician, like you say, you know, just crazy stories of faith and um, seeing miracles and and all kinds of crazy things um, into uh, a prayer ministry with a friend. You know, we just get together and pray for like eight hours a day, every day. We just did that for years, you know, for, you know, 30, 40 hours a week. We just sit in a room praying and I got sick. I couldn't do any of those things. I'm just stuck at home. And it's a crisis for me because the the charismatic experience of God as I had experienced it, understood it. And I'm not saying anyone taught me this. I'm not saying any preacher got up and taught me this, but was really the experience of God was really bound up in the mission for God so that it, it was quite really a working relationship. You know, it was sort of you bless me with these experiences to do things why you know um this is a missional endeavor and all of this totally, and then yeah. suddenly i can't i can't help anyone i can't do anything and um i'm sick i'm in bed for years you know doctors couldn't figure out what was going on i'm spending probably four or five hundred dollars a week i mean this is somebody who's been a musician his entire life we lived off faith and i'm now spending something like 170 dollars a week on vitamins that my body's not absorbing plus additional um uh, specialist fees and doctor's fees. Um, I can't do anything. I got no money. And I had this crisis of, well, who am I to God? What What is to ask for, seek and pray? And so I ended up just popping out to this um, Anglican retreat center, a Franciscan retreat center near where I lived. And they were so kind. Um, it was like, used to be $10 a day to just book an entire room. And I'd I would just go, the room had a bed and a desk. I'd go lie on the bed, I'd sleep, I'd rest. And for about two or three years, I would literally just, because my kids, there's one day I'd wake up and my, one of my sons came and said, dad, dad, will you play with me? And I said, before I even had a chance to answer, as I just took a breath, he said, oh no, you won't play with me. You're too sick. And it, it just broke my heart. And so I would go out to this retreat center and just lie there. And over these years, I think what happened was, A, I learned life as it was. I was too sick to, you know, watch Netflix all day. I couldn't read much. I just sat, I looked out the window and I experienced the world as it was. That was transforming. But then secondly, I finally let go of the sense that God was somebody I worked. God was a workmate. He was someone I, I knew and, and grew close to when I worked. And really entered a friendship with God, an existence level friendship that was, God, I've got nothing to offer you. I can't think my way to you. I'm full of anger and bitterness and grief. I'm full of sickness. None of my theology is working. You've destroyed it all. Congratulations. I'm completely lost. And I don't know. I got no idea what to believe about any of the stuff I believe my whole life. But I can't let go of beauty, truth, and goodness. I just couldn't. It was, I just, somehow some part of me and this is a miracle i just knew that as much as i wanted to run for the for the hills and and curse my life i couldn't and i think what happened there was silence and solitude rose to the surface i found a new language for being in trinity and i didn't read a single desert father or knew anything about church history it wasn't until i started commoners communion which was my attempt at helping other people who felt so discombobulated to experience prayer that people started saying to me, Oh, so you're a contemplative now, or, Oh, you've been reading the mystics. And I was like, well, who are they? And so I've spent the last five or six years since then, just engulfing, you know, St. John of the cross and Teresa of Avila and, you know, the early church writers and, and just having my mind blown, basically being like, you are describing what happened in my life. 
So I, I think it's a grace, man. I think it's a miracle that that God did that in my life. Um, but it hasn't been intellectual. And I, I think for me, this is part of my heart for our generation at this at this time. And maybe the language I want to use is um, what we need is a, a reformation of the heart, but we need that through the mind. So I, it's not, I'm, I, I love, I'm a thinker, man. I'm like a Enneagram is it four or um, Enneagram five? So I'm like, I'll think my way to the end of myself. It's my, so I am not anti-intellectual at all, but what I have come to learn that if your mind doesn't enter to, toward God through the heart, um, none of your intellect is, is able to help. And I think there's something about us being experiential beings. And, you know, you're talking about a crisis of meaning um, and we can, there are so many amazing philosophical and theological and social places to go but I think deep down, the reason people are leaving the churches in droves is because they're thirsty and mm. they're not getting a drink. And there is something about that that is so essential and simple that I think there is going to be a new charismatic uh, movement in a sense, but just nothing. I don't think it will be meeting a desire that was met in the 60s, 70s, 80s. No. I think it will be this almost welcoming into Trinitarian life um this new map of saying i if i can't drink i die spiritually and i i love the books and i love the practices and all this stuff mm. but at the end of all of those things if there is not a well that i can dive into and be refreshed this well of experience mm. um then it is just another great mental project and i think for me that's how i came into this i filled my mind with all of this stuff i love reading it but it, it sort of was it, it came first through a, a transformational experience. And I think that's why for me, in many ways, it's caused me to revisit my charismatic background and my charismatic heart and force myself to study Pentecostal history and unwind the stuff because I don't want to lose. Uh, I don't want to walk away from that essential offering of my twenties, which was you can know and experience God in reality and manifestly and transcendently. I don't want to lose it because of the culture that was so harmful to me. Um, and when I read the mystics, especially the 14th century mystics, you know, Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, and those, their, their experiences landed in a Catholic faith that would be so oppositional to Pentecostal and charismatic culture is a sign to me that there is a new marriage to, to take place, I think, between our experience and our theology as we, as we dig into history. Um, yeah. It sounds like what you're describing is, um, I've got a friend, he's a... Um, a cognitive scientist. He's not a professing Christian. Um, and he is at the university of Toronto, John Verveke. And I bring up his work quite a bit. And he, he's got these categories of, of knowledge to help us kind of differentiate between there's different kinds of knowing he calls them mm -hmm. the four P's. And one of the P's is the, is propositional knowing. And so mm -hmm. I think what I hear in you, you know, maybe I should describe that, you know, for listeners that aren't familiar with that, or maybe if you're not familiar with it, Strawn, is propositional knowing is the sort of knowledge that has to do with um, uh, ad adherence to like statements of facts. So for example, mm -hmm. like a ca cats are mammals is a proposition that we can have a propositional level of agreement with. And so in many ways, like I, what I hear you saying is that the, accumulation of more propositional knowledge about God is not the doorway out of people's meaning crisis, but it mm. gets to the other P that Raveki talks about and it's participation. So mm. participatory knowledge, which is mm. like the knowledge that I, I have with my wife, which is more than that. She just has brown hair and blue eyes and that we have 
three kids and our anniversaries on those. Those are propositions. But I, I know my wife in a participatory way that almost can't be reducible to propositions. And yet mm. propositions are helpful signposts in some sense for describing yeah. things that are true. And so when you talk about like the way out for you, you read you and you're well read and it's it's not that you're against the life of the mind what i want to differentiate and sift through between like there's knowledge that is like yes is jesus the son of god would i sign off of that sign off on a doctrine contract about that yes and yet someone can affirm that proposition and yet not enter into the sort of participatory communion that brings transformation is that is that a fair summary of what you're trying to say absolutely man i I think you're spot on because and it's hard territory isn't it because you can sound an anti-intellectual by accident and and i'm not and and i do think there is an Mm anti-intellectualism in a lot of charismatic culture but um but i i think what you're saying is is a really helpful paradigm and it makes me think of i guess a pharisaical disciple um comparison in the new testament that you know propositional knowledge and theology can be really helpful um and of course it's helpful i mean we need it we yeah. desperately need it we can't live without it it is worship and you know worship god with your heart soul strength and mind um but without if if you don't and you got to be careful here too but if we don't elevate experience enough if we leave it a little bit lopsided um then it can actually keep you from God in the way that the Pharisees had such a strong paradigm. Uh, and, you know, they were better they were better disciples than you and I could ever dream of. I mean, we're talking about guys who, you know, gave extraordinary amounts to the poor and to others who fasted and prayed like I could only dream of, you know, knew the scriptures back to front. So let's not fool ourselves that they were imbeciles. Um, that that propos- propositional knowledge stole from them the experience of Jesus. And I think what we have to constantly do in theology and our work, and I think really at this point, especially in, in what I love um, Brad Juzek's language, that the great um, the great deconstruction that we're experiencing, we have to be careful not to depersonalize God and try and under, understand our way to a solution. And I think, I think what prayer does is it allows space in all that unknownness and ache and disappointment and anxiety and trauma and dis- and depression we feel. It's to still reach out to God and say, "I still need to know." Not that not not that you love me up here. I need to know it. I need to it, that has to become real for me, mm-hmm. um, and I have to do that outside the bounds of my understanding because right now my trauma and my letdown and my disappointment and all of those things is like a tsunami wave of confusion and I can't overcome it. And I think when I look at the gospels and I look at the disciples, I see that they must've looked at all of the Pharisees and gone, these are the smart guys here. And yet when I eat a meal with Jesus, when I spend time with him, when I experience him, it just, it is in here utterly true. And so I I think that um, in prayer and, and maybe this is, this is if I if I had a critique of Protestantism, it's that we ditched so much of the 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 theology of church history because we didn't see it in scripture. And one of the the beautiful historical theological paradigms has been what's called the mystic way or the um, illumination purgation union cycle that um, we go through these moments of I see, I get it, I fully grasp it. And then 
in order to purge that revelation of all of the um all of the junk that gets attached to it you know like a good example might be i'm an early christian i love god because he makes me feel good and i suddenly feel great because god's given me purpose and then go, after a while, God sort of goes, well, it kind of feels like you just want me because of the feelings I give you. So we enter this purgation stage, which is God purging us of all of the things underneath him that we've elevated to him. So he might say, I'll just, you can experience my presence outside of emotions and safety for a while so that you can learn to love me. And on the other side of that experience, you end up loving God for who he is, not what he gives you. And I think um, in this, in that moment of purgation, we have to be able to have some kind of experience of God in our deconstruction, in our disappointments that is greater than um, our feelings or greater than our understanding. It has to be able to say, I abandon myself with this kind of crazy trust that you're good and beautiful and true. And I give you the opportunity to exist in my life when I'm completely undone. And that was always understood in church history as a crucial part of the journey. But what we've done now is we've pointed at those people and said, hey, you've lost faith. You're out of it. You're questioning. You're gone. We haven't said you're in part, You're a critical part of the journey. If you will just open your hands and say, God, I almost, I pretty much don't believe or I doubt extremely, but I'm here. We, we've robbed them of that experience. And so I think we've seen a lot of people just walk out going, nothing that I thought was going to happen has happened. And I think this rediscovery of, um, I don't know, for me, the language I find is beholding because I feel like in that season of my life when I was going through those things, I could sit and watch God. I couldn't do much else, but I could sit and watch for the beauty and the truth and the goodness of God when my mind was like, I don't get it. Um, but if we don't restore that beholding or if we don't restore that maturation in our prayer life, um, we will have nowhere to go after this great deconstruction. We just will we'll continue to try and rebuild the old church. Um, and it just, it's not going to fit and we'll rob the church of mature saints. And I think yeah. that somehow the experience of God has to be placed there. And I think that's where, that's what I kind of feel this, let's call it fourth wave charis charismatic or whatever, because it has to leap over the fence. It has to say, yes, experience, but also yes, experience in the midst of this. You know, it has to be opened up, has to be given to the poor in spirit, has to be given to the doubter, to the struggling. Um, if it's not, uh, then it's, I don't think it, it is the maturity that God's seeking in our times, you know. Well, everyone, keep in mind that this is just the first segment of my conversation with Strawn Coleman. The second segment will be available next week, next Tuesday. And so uh, you want to come back and listen next week as well. I'm just, I'm just so delighted. As you can tell, uh, I, Strawn is a pretty amazing human being and uh, the wisdom he affords from his journey is special. And I, I think you'll want to come back and collect some more of that wisdom. Today's episode wouldn't be possible without the generous support of people just like you over on Patreon. I want to give an extra special thanks to Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Elise, Garth, Jesse, John Mark, Johnny, Josie, Justin, Lola, Luke H, Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Paul Reese, Rob, and Sam P. 
you know, I was just looking today and, and some of you that I just mentioned off have been supporting since all the way back in 2019. I think the earliest date I'm seeing here is October of, of 2019 for some of you I just listed. And so that's been close to three years that some of you have been keeping this project going. And I'm just so deeply thankful for each and every one of you. And for those of you that I didn't even get the opportunity now to, to list off. And so thank you very much for for allowing me to do this without advertisement and for uh, supporting this and, and believing that it's worth these sorts of conversations, the lectures, the other stuff I'm doing is is worth it and worth your time and worth your attention and worth your hard-earned money. So I, I deeply appreciate it. If you have questions, if you have objections, if you have differences of opinion, or if there's something that stood out to you today that you're like, oh man, that really resonated with me. I learned something. I'd really love to hear from you. Of course, if you are a member on Patreon, you can participate in the discussion forum or in our Discord server. But you can also reach out to me by, you can send me a direct message there. But outside of Patreon, you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram as well, at Paul Anleitner. I'm on both of those social media spaces. I have a Facebook page, but I never use it. So don't reach out to me there if you're messaging me there. Sorry, I'm not ignoring you. I just ignore Facebook altogether. But uh, again, you can feel free to reach out to me and connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram too as well. I love hearing from you. I love the insights. I love the back and forth that we have um, as you're listening and processing these things. And that that's really special to turn this from a dialogue just with Strawn, where I know you're listening, to actually dialoguing with you. That's That really makes this something unique. So thank you again for listening. Thank you all for your support. And I hope again that you will tune in next week to the second segment of this conversation with Strong Coleman. Go out and support him. Buy his book. Oh man, the first few weeks of a book sale, I know from experience and releasing my own book last year are so important, um, you know, for the algorithm to help other people uh, be able to uncover it, or I should say discover it. So go out, uh, go on Amazon, other places and, uh, and support Strong Coleman. Uh, I, I believe in that guy. So go out and buy his book. All right. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.